are listening to episode 51, chapter 2 of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. I'm Chris Lambert. And I'm Josh Havens. And we're on a journey to learn what it means to live a lifestyle of discipleship. We're glad you're joining us and hope that as you set aside this time for God, that He would help you grow today in the everyday moments of life. Today, we're continuing our conversation with Chuck DeGroat about his new book, When Narcissism Comes to Church. Chuck DeGroat is Professor of Counseling in Christian Spirituality at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan, and co-founder and a senior fellow at Newbegin House of Studies in San Francisco. He is a licensed therapist, author, retreat leader, and spiritual director. He spent the last 20-plus years in a dynamic combination of pastoral ministry, seminary teaching, and clinical counseling. His books are practical and pastoral, meeting readers at the intersection of our spiritual journeys and the very real struggles we experience. Whether you're in church leadership or not, you will at some point come face-to-face with a narcissist in the church. So the question then becomes, how can you know when you're working with a narcissist, and what can you do about it? With all the stories of spiritual leaders taking advantage of people and even abusing them, it's important to understand what to do when you discover you're being led by a narcissist. They may be talking about doing great things for the kingdom of God, and they may have a very attractive personality. It's also important to remember that not all who struggle with narcissistic tendencies will be full-blown narcissists. So in this chapter, Chuck unpacks the ways you can tell when you're working with a narcissist and how to know what you can do to help, or if you just need to get out of the way. So why does the ministry attract so many narcissists? Because it's, it really is astounding. In seminary, we, I, you know, we had to take <clears throat> some pastoral counseling classes and things like that. Right. And you know, we had to do some psycho- psychological profiles on different pastors, and you know, uh, especially like the big famous you know, uh, Jimmy Swagger and Jim Baker yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Like, yeah. like, why does the ministry attract these people when yeah. it seems like it should be the opposite? I know it does, doesn't it? And, uh, and yet those of us who go into ministry, uh, we often find ourselves on stage speaking the word of the Lord, you know, um, speaking in a sense on behalf of God, being uh, priests and mediators of God to some degree. There is a sense of I, I know, so as a young guy, when I went through, when I got my Master of Divinity, even, even the language, Master of Divinity, I was like, wow. Um, and then I remember the day I was ordained, and the elders came around me and laid hands, and I was emotional. And I've never been to an ordination service where there hasn't been some profound emotion, you know, some sense of the weightiness of it, because there, there, there is a sense. In Scripture, we, we, we read about the high responsibility and call of pastoral ministry, um, why that's the, that's like the $50,000 question, you know? Um, and, uh, it, it's a public role. Uh, we, we, we do see from the statistics that people who go into kind of like public leadership roles, uh, with some sense of power and authority do tend to be on the narcissistic spectrum. When I do my psychological assessments, I don't see many people with like avoidant personality disorder, dependent personality disorder, uh, they, they wouldn't want to be around people, mm-hmm. but these are folks who not only like being around people, but when like 93% of the general public doesn't like to speak publicly, they like to speak publicly on behalf of God. And so I don't know for, for those of us who follow Jesus, who want to walk in the humble way of Jesus, why we, we live such contradictory lives, but that's, 
also, you know, I read scripture and I realized that that's kind of par for the course too. That's the battle, you know, mm -hmm. the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I do are not the things that I want to do. Who am I? Yeah. You know, it's, it's the Pauline um, cry before God. Yeah, that's a... <laughs> Uh, so I heard a radio personality once talk about that. He's like, look, you in order to sit here and talk on the radio for three hours a day, you have to have some amount of pride. Otherwise, there's no way you'd be able to pull yourself out of bed each morning and go into the studio and do this. And yeah. so like even as like Josh and I sit here doing a podcast, right, and we, right. we think we at least have something to talk about, you do start to doubt what, you know, and then you, you again, you read a book like this and you're like, oh, man. Maybe yeah. I should. Maybe I should just go like, hide. <laughs> I'm. Uh, yeah, I've got. I've got some issues yeah. here. And so, in fact, I actually just told Josh the other day. I was like, yeah, I was watching some TV show, and, and they threw out the term "self-hating narcissist." And I go, "Hey, I think that's a good term for me. Like, I, I'm a self-hating narcissist because, <laughs> yeah. like, I realize you know you have that struggle within you. Um, that's right. But that it can also right. cause like, you know, self hatred might be too strong of a term, but like, yeah. you know, you put yourself down because you, that yeah. is that battle that you're wrestling with. Yeah. I mean, so, so this, this book comes out, what, two months ago or something, right at the advent of like COVID, uh, everything's shutting down. I've lost every gig. And, you know, a friend is like, how are you? Where are you right now? And what I want to say is nobody cares. Nobody sees me. Mm. Nobody's there to affirm me. You know, like all the all the stuff is right there, front and center, right when a, I've written a book on narcissism. And so mm. think about the irony of that. Right. Yeah. But it's I think the thing about it is that what what you just said was honest. And hopefully I'm honest enough with myself, curious enough about my own motives to kind of see those things and root them out and get back to who I am in Christ. But I do think that I have worked with over the years, uh, worked with in terms of my own um, pastoral work, therapy work, people who are not very curious. And, you know, we'll start to have the conversation and I'll say, hey, we, we uh, can we talk a little bit about, you know, your your assessment that I did? Uh, we, there was a spike on the narcissistic spectrum and I'll inevitably get the response of like, I knew it. You psychologists are always out to get us. Mm. You know, you're you're against me. You're not, you know, and, and, and you're not, you're not going to acknowledge all the fruit of my ministry or whatever it might be. You know, there's just resistance. And that's the painful part of it, you know, is that when there's not curiosity, there's just resistance. There's not a, like, as, as you guys sort of demonstrated a moment ago, a, a desire to kind of enter in and say, well, what, what about this indicts me? All right. So let's talk, let, let's keep going down the, uh, the, the pastoral, uh, avenue just a, a little bit more. So we, we, we've established that pastors or for whatever reason, maybe they have some pastor, uh, some narcissistic tendencies to get in there. Um, and pastoral leadership definitely does have a way of exacerbating that because of, like you said, you, uh, you're literally getting up and speaking for God every single week. And so, um, it, it definitely is a humbling thing. Um, but mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, we start to believe our own we start to drink our own Kool-Aid, I guess, as you, yeah, as you would say. Yeah. So what are the warning signs that parishioners should start looking out for if they see these narcissistic tendencies coming from uh, their pastors that, that aren't just the normal, like, that was good pastoral leadership? Because, like, one of the red flags you talk about, right, is grandiosity. And yeah. if we're talking about the kingdom of God, that's a very grand idea. That's a huge vision of, you know, yeah. literally the kingdom of God overthrowing the— the empire of the world and, and all like uh -huh. you can, you, like 
it's very natural language. And again, I like I feel very drawn to that. That's a really cool thing to talk about. Yeah. So how do we differentiate when a pastor's just talking about good kingdom of God things and then falling into some of these narcissistic tendencies? Yeah. Yeah, that's a tricky one because uh, he is most likely talking about the things of God, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there are probably two angles to approach that if you're a parishioner. One is kind of what's happening inside of you. And generally what I find is that parishioners tend to idealize narcissistic leaders. Um, in other words, uh, they start believing the pastor's press. And, um, and, and, and so when things happen or when there are red flags, they find themselves defending. And inevitably, I've, I've heard from parishioners who said, yeah, I defended him for two months or two years or two decades even, and I didn't realize it. And so um, there's, a, there's a healthy sense as a parishioner of, of seeing the flaws in your pastor too. I mean, I don't want them to see too many of my flaws, but I'm, I mean, there's a sense in which you want them to say, oh yeah, well, I, I know Chuck. Uh, or I know Chris or Josh, and um, he's not perfect. He's human, but he's got some really good things to offer. So I think there's that one that that sense. I I think that all there's also this sense where parishioners will begin to doubt their own experience. Like something will happen, they'll feel questioned or bullied or manipulated in some way, and they'll say, "Well, it can't be him because he's the pastor," and so it's that. You know, and, and, and I in my role will sometimes say, well, tr- trust your gut. Um, go back and pay attention a little longer and come back to me and let, let me know what you're feeling. Let me know what you're seeing. They'll say, well, it happened again and it happened here. And, I'm, you know, I every time I think it's got to be me, but I'm beginning to realize that this is a pattern. Mm-hmm. And whenever we see a pattern, you know, we're all going to disappoint people in one off kinds of ways. But whenever we see a pattern and we can sort of say, yeah, this has been happening, not just a couple of times not just that he's having a bad week, but this has happened consistently over the last couple of years. That's when the, a parishioner should say, okay, at least yellow flag. Uh, bring someone in who maybe can do a little bit of consulting work for you or ask some good questions. So what are some of those feelings that you're going to feel as a parishioner if you're dealing with uh, or you know, getting into the, some of these patterns? Yeah, well, I talk in there— I mean, some of this is about uh, spiritual and emotional abuse and the dynamics of these things. You know, we talk about uh, certainly in the ministry, uh, there have been significant cases of sexual abuse. Uh, We see that in the Catholic Church, but across the evangelical Protestant Church, we see that. But more often than not, we see the invisible wounds of, of emotional abuse. Then layer on top of that, the, the, the component of spiritual authority, and you've got this kind of spiritual emotional abuse, right? And that's what they begin to experience is maybe they feel bullied, manipulated, a little bit crazy. That's what we call gaslighting when you start to doubt your own reality or your mm-hmm. own experience. Did I did that really happen? Did the pastor just dress me down in front of the, the entire staff? That, that couldn't have happened that way. Um, when you feel small, ashamed, you know, what, what I like to say is that, you know, when you think about the dynamics of scripture, uh, think about it in terms of like um, the accuser in Genesis chapter three and Jesus. Jesus, in the presence of Jesus, you'll you'll grow larger. You know, there's a sense in which Jesus will speak to your dignity. Even if Jesus is talking about your sin, Jesus will do it in a way that calls out the deepest in you. Um, the accuser always dresses you down. You know, I think, and and there's something about the dynamic of a narcissistic leader that's always diminishing you for the sake of his own 
um, enlargement, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Um, and so you got to sort of pay attention to those signs. Yeah, that's good. And and it's so hard to really see those signs too, because they're so inviting at first. And so yeah. you kind of get like a live, the, the bubble, you get drawn into their orbit. And so yes. like everything revolves around them and you feel really cool. And they're, it, it's, it's sort of like one of those classic abuse situations that you hear of where it's, oh, well, he came and he apologized and he said he would never yes. do it again. And so then they can, they can make you feel really good privately yeah. sometimes and promise yeah. to change. But then again, yeah. Yeah. Back in public, they're there taking the passive aggressive pop shots or, you know, leaving you feeling, I think I like that word, ashamed and uh, more yeah. guilty than like, re redeemed in any sort of way. Well, right. Part of the trouble is so many codependent type personalities are going to be looking for leaders like that, that they can come to to feel important, feel validated and feel valuable around. And so as as these I don't want to overgeneralize, but as, as codependent people are looking for something to help them feel better, a charismatic leader in Christianity can, yeah. can kind of be that salve for them. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I, I think there's yeah. a real chance for somebody like that to get drawn into those kind of relationships anyway. Yeah, I think you're, you're spot on. And um, that, that's hard to say, you know, because I, I mean, frankly, I've been that person. Uh, I have I, I, I look back and over the course of 20 years, how many times I've been drawn in in part because of my own story of shame or insecurity and wanting to be sort of aligned with someone who makes me feel a little bit better about myself or a little bit more powerful or like number of times that I've surrounded myself with people who will bolster my sense of ego. Right. Mm -hmm. And so. Um, there's no, I, I want to say really clearly to people who might be listening, there's no shame in that as you come to realize that, wow, I, boy, I, I'm like drawn like a moth to a flame to a narcissist, you know, it, it does, it does require us to do some of our own inner work and ask the question, well, why, why is that the case? And what does that say about me and my own story? Uh, it certainly doesn't make you responsible for the narcissistic leader, but it, it does mean that you might be kind of blind and you might be enabling in ways that you're not quite aware of. Mm -hmm. yeah, especially because somebody, I think, can um, start out maybe on the more healthy side of narcissism when that relationship begins. And then over time, it becomes more and more toxic. And so it's, you know, like you're talking about, you sort of justify it for two decades because you remember how they were before it had really taken over and gone into full toxicity. Um, what if you're a parishioner and you realize you are in a situation where your pastor is a narcissist? Should you stay and try to get them help or influence change? Or is there no hope and you yeah. should really just leave? So I would say really complicated question, mm -hmm. um, and there's a different answer for every every unique human being um, who experiences that. That's when you need to get with a counselor, and the counselor first should kind of pay attention to what's going on inside you, and then sort that out, you know, so that you can, as we talk about in counseling, differentiate, kind of separate yourself from what's going on, and then you can ask the question, so what do I want to do? What am I feeling called to do in terms of the larger system or a, a, a more uh, significant conversation or something like that. But you really have to, like they say in the plane, put the oxygen mask on your face first, you know, 
uh, you, you have to do that work first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always say sort it out with a professional because that's I've seen too many people go in and like confront and then get bullied or abused even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I would like to point out, because, again, putting the oxygen mask on your yourself first is not narcissistic because no, narcissists aren't willing to do that sort of work like you just yeah, said. Yeah, that's right. If you find yourself listening to this episode and realizing that your pastor, leader, or friend has many of these narcissistic traits that leave you feeling gaslit and ashamed of who you are, I want you to know that you don't need to be a victim of this person. Perhaps you have dealt with it for so long because you feel that they were appointed by God and so it was your duty to persevere and stand by them. And it may be true that God appointed them and has even used them powerfully in people's lives. But that doesn't mean you should continue to sit under them. God's leaders should build people up, not tear them down. So if you find yourself in the orbit of a narcissistic leader, I want you to ask yourself why you have let yourself stay there for so long. And you shouldn't feel ashamed of your answer. We all get pulled in. Be honest with yourself. And then, after you have done the work of self-reflection, determine what kind of boundaries you need to establish to protect yourself from further spiritual and emotional abuse. This may require you to leave the church entirely, but it may just mean stepping back from ministry or activities for a while. Don't feel ashamed of this. You are not weak for doing so. Taking time to strengthen your emotional and spiritual health is a sign of strength and of spiritual maturity. How can you create a lifestyle of discipleship? Most Christians think discipleship is a program or a few practices thrown in at the beginning or end of the day. But we want to help you create a lifestyle where walking with Jesus throughout the day is not only possible, but natural. And we have a tool that's going to help you do just that. It's called the Daily Growth Journal. It's a guided journal that's going to help you become secure in your identity with God and authentically walk with Him in your daily life. Growing daily in your walk with Christ is possible if you cultivate a lifestyle of discipleship. And the Daily Growth Journal will help you do just that. for listening to this episode of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. To find out more about Chuck's work, check out chuckdegroat.net. Then check out the next chapter in our conversation where Chuck lays out the dangers of fake vulnerability or what he calls vulnerability. If you want to stay up to date on everything happening at Daily Growth Discipleship, go to dailygrowthdiscipleship.com and subscribe for free. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Spotify.